Case is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 00492, Alabama versus Bozeman. Ms. Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. We are here today not because a possibly innocent man was unjustly convicted, nor are we here because he was possibly denied a constitutional right, nor are we even here because he possibly was denied one of the rudimentary demands of a fair trial. We are simply here today to resolve whether or not uh, a guilty man should escape his just punishment as a result of a technical violation of a statute. Specifically, the question presented here is whether or not Michael Bozeman is entitled to have his, was entitled to have his indictment dismissed with prejudice as a result of a one-day transfer from federal custody into state custody for purposes of arraignment and uh, appointment of counsel. Well, that's the clear provision of Article 4E of the um, interstate agreement here on detainers. Uh, it, it couldn't be more clearly provided in there that um, the court shall enter an order dismissing with prejudice an indictment or complaint if um, he isn't tried immediately. Clearly, the language, when it's read in isolation, seems to indicate that the indictment must be dismissed with prejudice. But yeah, the, the, the language simply can't be read in isolation. It has to be read against the, the background principle of harmless error, which was in existence at the time the IAD was passed. Well, I would think maybe you just ought to seek an amendment of the agreement. I mean, it's just clear. Well, there's a question whether or not the, the um, parties to the agreement can actually amend the agreement. This is, is not a — this is an interstate compact involving 48 different states. Can Alabama just get out of it any time they want? How does that work? They would have to go to their legislature and uh, repeal but, um, but the, the, the state could, through this legislature, just withdraw from the whole country. Yes, according to the act itself, it could withdraw from the whole act itself. But if to do so, it would have to give up certain uh, rights that are bestowed upon it of in course. the act that are very uh, beneficial to the states in disposing of detainers. So, so supposing there was an effort to amend this provision, if, if it proves that, that you're wrong about the, uh, how, how could it be done? Could Congress alone do it? Congress could not unilaterally um, change the provision of the Congress did it, didn't it, for federal uh, prisoners? Congress did do it in um, Section 9 of the agreement, but the, when, when Congress passed the original agreement in Section 7, they reserved to themselves the right to amend the agreement. Other states, specifically Alabama, did not, do not have such a reservation clause in the agreement, which would make it more difficult, certainly, uh, to uh, amend the agreement. Now, there are some other states that have amended the agreement unilaterally, but it's not been challenged whether or not that was permitted, permissible under the agreement itself. Well, you shouldn't sign agreements that say this then. I mean, if you, if you don't intend to abide by it, it, it just couldn't be clearer. It just says, you know, if, if, the, if trial is not had, the information or complaint shall not be of any further force and effect, and the court shall enter an order dismissing. I mean, what, why, did, why did your state sign that, uh, adopt that, if it, if it wasn't prepared to abide by it? Well, the state adopted the agreement partially, certainly because of the benefits to it, but it also adopted the agreement against the background principle that harmless errors should do not, uh, I do not know uh, a background principle that overcomes the explicit mandate of a statute, shall enter an order dismissing the same. The, do, do you have cases 
that, that simply don't talk about, well, where, where the implied effect of a provision in most cases is to cause dismissal of the suit. We won't let it happen when there's been no substantial prejudice. That I can understand. But here you have language that is categorically mandatory. No, Your Honor, I do not have a case where this, where this Court has specifically held harmless error applicable where there is a specific type of remedy such as this contained within the agreement. Isn't there a broader problem? And I, I have the same difficulty, I guess, with the, with the government's de minimis argument. And that is, uh, it's true, there is a, there is a as you put it, a, a sort of a background principle uh, of the harmless error doctrine, and there's a background of de minimis. But I don't think that there is a background to the effect that these, either or of these doctrines, may be used to excuse an intentional and systematic series of violations of the statute. And I, it seems to me that that is what you are arguing for. You're saying not only uh, would we move the person for two days for an arraignment here, we will continue to do or we should we should be entitled to continue to do it, uh, and even though that's a technical violation of the statute, uh, we would in each case be excused on harmless error. Do you know of any instance in which harmless error, or de minimis for that matter, has been used uh, in effect to excuse a systematic violation of a statute? I, d- I do not know of a case where that has been done. However, I would say, number one, that an intentional violation act would certainly, whether or not it was intentional, would be a part of the harmless error analysis. And here I don't think that there wasn't an intentional act whatsoever. I think the the prosecutor simply misread the act and dropped the ball. And as a result, uh, if this Court holds that um, dismissal is required, then, of course, then the the purposes of this act have not been met. But I thought you were making a broader argument, and that is that this sort of transfer should be allowed. It, it is, I mean, I can certainly see the, the value of making this transfer so that somebody who is not willing to waive arraignment can at least get counsel appointed and get the, get the ball rolling toward prosecution. Uh, and I thought you were making the broader argument, not merely that this was a one-time mistake, uh, but that for the good reasons that support this procedure, we ought, as a, as a general matter, to apply harmless error uh, when, whenever it occurs. Mr. Justice Souter, I am making the broader argument that harmless error should apply to a statute unless there's an indication of an intent contrary to it that says that harmless error should not apply. And it's my position that this statute does not sh- indicate such an intent that harmless error How do we know it's harmless? I mean, how do we know it's harmless? What's the point of Article 6? It's hard to... What's a po- what is it contemplating? The, the, you, you state, there's a person in another state. You want to try him. Now, you're not supposed to bring him out of that state until you're ready to go to trial? How, how does it normally work? Normally, Article 4 works such that you bring the prisoner over and uh, you have 120 days within which to try him. I know. Him. So you're going to put him in the county jail. Right. But, but, but what, what do you, you, you have the indictment before you get him. Is that right? That's correct. So, so what's he coming for? Just the trial? Under the Act, that is the purpose. Is he supposed to? Uh, if you read the language in its technical, in its uh, uh, on its For, face, then then yes, that seems to be the only purpose. The, the, the only reason do. that a state Joe Smith is in a, is is in California. Now you're going to use this Act. You're bringing him. You're under this Act in Article Six. You don't even want to see him until you're ready to go to trial. Is that the theory of it? 
that seems to be the theory. If you read it on its face, oh, now, now might you sometimes no. have to see him in Alabama before you go to trial? I'm sorry, I didn't. Hey, look, how do trials work in that state? Don't, don't you sometimes have to see a defendant before he goes to trial? Absolutely, and that is why this individual was brought to, <coughs> brought to Alabama to so have to So this must come up all the time. I mean, you bring a person into the state. We say it's not we're not ready for trial yet, but we're going to the arraignment or we're going to uh, have a hearing on, on suppression or, or a lot of things. Certainly. All right. So, so what are they thinking in this? There might be lots of instances where there are days that pass between bringing him into the state and trying him. And what's supposed to happen in that time? Are you supposed to always keep him in a county jail, even if you're in Maryland, and in fact the the other prison happens to be two feet away in Virginia? And, and the state of Alabama's position is no. You don't always have to. Keep but that's what it that's, says. So what are they thinking? I, I think that this, that's not what it's, it says. I think that there's enough ambiguity in the statute that that is not required that you keep them there until trial. Well, well you said the prosecutor dropped dropped the ball. I, I think candidly, uh, which leads to Justice Breyer's question: If everything had gone right here, he would have stayed in the county jail, uh, and and not and, and it would not be returned to the original place where we can get to that in a minute. He could probably be returned some other place. Right. Um, but at least not to the original place uh, until the trial is complete. Right. Or unless you get a waiver. Yes. Can he be brought uh, to um, the, uh, the, another state for questioning just to meet uh, with the police officials? Certainly. Or is it just a court proceeding? Certainly he can be brought to um, another state just for questioning or for other purposes. But the the position of, of uh, Mr. Bozeman is that under the Act, you can only bring him for trial. The position of the state is that, no, there are other reasons that you can bring him under a detainer to Alabama. But that we don't really need to resolve that here. No, that's not the question that's presented t- today, Justice the, the, well, the reason I ask is the only sense I can make out of it, given the realities, is this is some kind of prophylactic rule. And the prophylactic rule would be, we know it's nutty in a lot of circumstances, But nonetheless, the only way to get the states to move off the dime is to insist that they try him before they send him back, even if the jail's next door to the prison he came from. Now, now if it's a prophylactic rule, you don't have a de minimis violation. And certainly this this act was passed. It's remedial legislation. It was was passed specifically to address certain problems that that occurred as a result of detainers. Um, There being no formal procedures and there being no way to bring an inmate into a state and have the the detainers disposed of and to do so in such a way that it didn't interfere with their rights to be a rehabilitation. That's the specific purposes behind this act. And, and Article 9 of the Act specifically says that it should be construed in such a way as to effectuate those purposes. And to, to uh, construe this Act as requiring dismissal of the indictment is not going to effectuate those well, but purposes. But on that point, uh, I thought that was a persuasive argument that both you and the government make. They're interested in the rehabilitation, so you should send them back to the federal prison. But why can't that be achieved by just asking for a waiver from the, from the man? Because he would presumably agree with you in the, in, in, in the normal case. Supposedly you could... You, you know, theoretically, you certainly could ask for a waiver, but that is not what happened in this case, and it shouldn't be required that you ask for a waiver in order to. Um, well, why not? I mean, if everybody is fully informed about the statute and the procedures, why couldn't that interest be adequately protected by saying, "Counsel, here's the problem: we can't try this fellow for another 30 days, so we, we'd, we can either let him stay here in county jail or go back to, to his regular rehabilitation program, then give the person a choice." 
We could give the person a choice, but certainly, uh, again, that could lead, that could just simply lead to more litigation and whether or not he understood what he was waiving and what right he had. And also, we have to get him here uh, practically in Alabama, under the practical way. To, you have to get the person into Alabama before you can appoint counsel. There are ways to appoint counsel in advance of bringing the person to Alabama, um, but, but pra- the practicality well, is that just means here. that you, at least instead of a 24-hour turnaround, make it 48 hours. So you appoint counsel, give them time to consult with counsel, and then decide whether to go ahead with the trial before you send them back or send them back and let them continue the government program. I would think very often the prisoner would say, yes, it makes more sense to go back. Because here I guess he lived in Alabama, didn't he? That's a Yes, he did. Certainly that's one way that that this act could be implemented. But but the state's position is that that's not required under the act because simply the the, the transfer. Well, it's clearly required if you read it literally. But you're sort of saying we, for this reason, we should not read it literally, and and therefore it's not required. Right. Yeah. And, of course, this Court, uh, at the time that this case was decided and at the time we were talking about whether or not um, Mr. Bozeman, uh, whether it was a, he, his rights had been violated by the transfer, this Court had not decided New York versus Hill and decided whether or not waiver applied to the Act. And similarly, the argument made there was that because the Act said that it shall be dis- — that if there's a violation of a 120-day provision, that the Act shall be dismissed — or the, dis- the indictment shall be dismissed with, with prejudice, that waiver shouldn't apply. And because and but the act simply an, didn't say whether it should or shouldn't. Um, there was an enormous difference, Ms. Stewart, between that case and this one, and that is the defendant did something that caused. I mean, the dis- defendant was st- sitting right there and agreed to something. Here, the defendant hasn't agreed to anything at all. The, so it's one thing to say a defendant can't say, "Yeah, go ahead and try me," and then the. The t- trial date comes and he says, aha, uh, it's too late. Here, the defendant didn't do one thing. Well, I, I, I think there is a significance in that that case involved waiver, but it's not for the purposes of the argument that I'm making, which is that the IAD was silent on whether or not waiver principles applied to it, just as it's silent as to whether or not harmless error principles applied to it. This Court held that because it was silent and because a general principle that there's a presumption that waiver applies, that waiver should apply there. Similarly, I'm arguing that because harmless error is a — there's a presumption that it applies to statutes as well as to constitutional errors, that it should apply in this case. It seems it would apply, then, in every case. I and mean, here was a prosecutor who made a perfectly reasonable choice were it not for this uh, IAD to say, we're going to turn him around in 24 hours, just want to arraign him, send him back. But — the, the literal reading of this cuts the other way, and if you don't hold prosecutors to that literal reading, then every case will be harmless, and the must, shall, will have no teeth at all. Well, I don't, I don't think that every case would result in, in harmful error. Certainly, um, in this case, is a perfect example where there was no harm. Or, no, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I got be, that back. Certainly, there are cases where there would be harm to the defendant by the transfer. For instance, in Alabama, there are like 2,600 inmates involved in drug programs, and there is currently a, a waiting list of 800. Um, under the I, uh, if if an inmate were transferred to another jurisdiction for a single day or maybe two days, he wouldn't lose his place in line to become involved in those programs. However, if he was if he was transferred for the entire period, say um, to a federal jurisdiction. Uh, 
to wait trial, he would lose his place and lose his opportunity to participate in those programs, which could specifically prevent him from participating. But we're talking about a one-day turnaround, and we're talking about, I'm saying that this practice of saying it's convenient for us to bring the person up without the clock ticking on when we have to start the trial. So bring him up, arrange arraignment, send him right back. And it seems to me that every case of like that would be harmless harmless error and not uh, and and then you have the words of the statute and and then simply not enforced I do think that there is a situation where you could bring somebody just for one day and there could be harm to them. If they weren't involved specifically, say it was the time to take a GED, for instance, was that day, and they couldn't take it as a result, and it wouldn't be given for, you know, another year or something along that line, so it would be harm to, to the defendant. So there could be harm from a single-day transfer. Well, on that, I mean, the, 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 even in this case illustrates the particular day, and first it was one day and then another day, so it doesn't seem that — the particular day is uh, is what's at issue. It's the idea of can we get this person here for a purpose other than trial and send them back and not keep him here long term until the trial. That, that is certainly one of the, the issues that is encompassed here today. If the Court has no further questions, I'd like to save the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Ms. Stewart. Uh, Mr. Lampkin, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As the majority of federal courts have held, a brief interruption in a prisoner's confinement does not require dismissal of the state indictment against the prisoner under Article 4E of the Interstate Agreement on Detainers. Those decisions are correct, and the rule of de minimis is of particular Why would a long interruption be worse? Pardon? Why would a long interruption be worse? There are two reasons, Your Honor. First, a long interruption would often cause the prisoner to lose his place in programs, and then he would also lo- may lose his priority. Yeah, the, inter- the interruption part wouldn't. I mean, if he was in the county jail for a month or a year, and then they sent him back, the sending back wouldn't cause any problem. That's correct, Your Honor. Our view is that the interruption is what is de minimis in this case. And when the interruption is merely for an overnight period, it does not cause a disruption in the inmate's participation in in programs of rehabilitation in the original institution of confinement. If there was a long period of interruption, in contrast, the inmate would have to start over in the programs or could possibly lose his place as priority of the programs, depending on the institution. So we believe that, yes, in fact, there could be a longer interruption that would cause harm to the — But if your rationale is to protect the interests of the prisoner, why isn't the waiver the solution? In an ideal world, yes, they would get waivers. But in our experience, this situation arises because of miscommunications. For example, in a case called United States versus Taylor, the United States Marshal Service placed a detainer on the prisoner, and the United States Attorney's Office was not aware of that detainer. Consequently, when they obtained custody of the prisoner, they said — the magistrate specifically asked, is there a detainer on this prisoner? And the U.S. Attorney said, no. They sent the prisoner back, not realizing well, we would. can't make the law take care of miscommunication within the United States Department of Justice, can we? I mean, we've got to assume everybody knows what's going on. Of course, Your Honor. But the rule of de minimis is that when the event is so insubstantial in relationship to the purposes of the statute, the law does not take cognizance of it. And a single overnight transfer, like the one at issue here, is in substantial relationship to the, pro- the 
purposes of the, pro- of the prohibition, and that purpose is to ensure rehabilitation of the prisoner and the prisoner's participation in the rehabilitation program. Yeah, but to the extent you rely on the interest of the prisoner, it seems to me that interest is totally protected by a simple requirement that he can waive, because it's presumably have counsel and advise him, listen, you're better off if you go back and continue your program. I just don't understand why the waiver isn't a complete answer. Your Honor, it's not a complete answer for two reasons. First, one, oftentimes prisoners would prefer that there is a mistake and that they actually get sent back and the, and the indictment be dismissed. And second, there is an interest in the institution, the sending institution, in receiving the prisoner back because it's the state's interest to ensure that its prisoners are undergoing the rehabilitation programs that they are providing. And when the prisoner is away for an undue period of time, such as the sometimes lengthy period between arraignment and trial, they are not participating in those numerous programs. And it is to the state's detriment. And so in that sense, although we often rely on the prisoner, as in the context of waiver, to Was this the essential rationale for the act that the prisoner have these correctional programs, or was it uh, more the thought that the state uh, should be entitled to uh, impose its punishment for retribution purposes? The, the act has twin purposes, and the two purposes are, one, to set up a system of expedi- an expeditious system whereby states could obtain prisoners from other jurisdictions and exact their punishment or impose the penalties prescribed by law. And the other purpose was to ensure that while they were doing that, it did not unduly interfere with the state that had had the prisoner in its confinement and its programs of rehabilitation. Would the act have been complied with here if the prisoner, instead of being returned to Florida, the Florida prison had gone to some other prison? Because it says he has to be returned to the original place of imprisonment. Yet, Your Honor, I, I, if one were to lead, read the language quite literally, they could have sent him to a federal institution, for example, in some other part of Alabama, and it would not have invoked the literal language of the statute, and dismissal would not have been required. Have there it been is any a ra- cases on that? No. It is a rather poorly drafted uh, agreement in that respect. But because it is an agreement, because it is so a They could just send him across the street to the federal prison for a couple of months, and there would be no problem. Um, I, I, that's not where he originally came from. That's not where he originally came from. And that situation occurs, for example, where the United States Marshals retain custody of a high-security prisoner, as they have the right to do when they have concerns that the state may not have appropriate facilities, that they would retain that prisoner potentially in another location other than that one in the original confinement. It is not a well-drafted agreement, but it is, at its core, a contract, an agreement among the states. And for that reason, the sometimes more flexible terms of construction applicable to contracts, such as breach and performance, are applicable here. Given the harsh consequences of a violation, complete frustration of the state's efforts to enforce its criminal law, we believe that the rule of de minimis is of particular force in this context. It seems unlikely that the state's meant to abrogate the principle of de minimis in light of that harsh consequence. In addition, Why wouldn't the same argument have applied to the United States? But you've got a special provision. Indeed, when Congress enacted that special provision, the courts were divided four to two in favor of that, uh, the rule of de minimis or something similar to it. Four different circuits had held that in a single overnight transfer or a very short-term transfer that did not interfere with the purposes of the Act did not require dismissal with prejudice. There were two two courts of appeals that were to the contrary, and Congress therefore stepped in with a different rule and amended the Act as it was entitled to do under under Section 7 of the implementing legislation. Um, But states couldn't replicate that because they all have to be bound by the same — is that — is that so, or don't you know what, what is the answer to that? The Fourth Circuit has addressed that issue in a case called Bush versus Muncie, and it's not a matter of any clarity. 
but it appears that it would be somewhat difficult for a state to unilaterally amend its implementing legislation without withdrawing, unless it, as Congress did in Section 7, ex- had expressly reserved that right. And um, then if it had, if it did enact a provision that was inconsistent with the uh, agreement, there would be an issue among the states as to whether or not those states were willing to give that amending state but the benefits of the agreement, notwithstanding its uh, departure in some degree. Wouldn't the easy way to do it, though, simply be to, for the, for the states that wanted to at least, uh, to enter into a new pact sort of in the nature of a codicil? Uh, and and put that before Congress in the contract cl- uh, the compact clause, uh, and at least uh, as among those states that agreed to the amendment, I would suppose there would be no impediment to applying the the same rule that that, that the United States has. I mean that wouldn't be all that tough. Oh, if, if for 48 states to arrive at the agreement to pass it as implementing legislation in each of those 48 states and to get Congress to pass on the compact is a somewhat arduous, although it is potentially viable prospect. However, uh, we believe that just as Congress resolved, in effect, a 4-2 circuit conflict in favor of the rule of de minimis and in favor of, of permitting these returns, we believe that this Court could take cognizance of the rule of de minimis as well and rule that because a single overnight transfer is so unlikely to interfere with the purposes of the Act that it falls within the rule of de minimis and therefore should not result in the harsh consequence of complete frustration of the State's efforts to enforce its criminal laws. That result, What's believe, your best case from this Court? Best case from this court on uh, de minimis or de minimis the, proposition. Uh, our, the case we cited on the first page of our argument section is Wrigley, but Wrigley cites about six other. Yeah, I didn't think that was the. What's your next best case? Next best case would probably be Portland versus Retail Druggist Association, and the next case after that would probably be Anderson versus Mount Clemens Pottery Company. Um, those cases all involved intentional conduct that was in violation of a specific st- a prohibition. But in each of those cases, this Court contemplated that because the, uh, the, the conduct itself was of de minimis proportion in relation to the Act's purposes and the realities of the marketplace in one case and the realities of uh, the hospital industry in another, it could be excused under the rule of de minimis. Justice Souter pointed out that this is a remedial system, and you're asking us to really alter the design of the system. Um, We don't believe it's a fundamental alteration in the design of the system. It is simply a recognition that there are some applications that are so far removed from the purpose and so insubstantial, and some events that are so insubstantial in light of the purpose that they fall within the well-recognized rule of de minimis and therefore should not be considered violations. You're really asking us for across-the-board approval of we can bring the person up for a reason other than trial, legitimate reason, to to, um, arraign the person, to be interrogated or whatever a special purpose unrelated to trial, and yet the statute doesn't make any room for this. I believe And and I had a, um, Ms. Stewart was speaking, and she said, the prosecutor made a mistake. Here, it took mistakes on both ends. The sending of the person, is, is there no effort to communicate to the states and to all the federal authorities that this compact as presently drawn says when you send them they stay till the trial is over this this is in fact a trap for the unwary but the federal government does not have a way of knowing whether or not the individual is being brought for example back merely to plead guilty in which case it would take overnight but and the, would this when the trial. communication was we want him for 24 hours 
Correct. And, in fact, if he were pleading guilty and that were the arranged — the agreement with trial, 24 hours would have sufficed to complete the trial within the meaning of the statute. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Mr. Lampkin. Uh, Mr. Christensen, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, all courts that have taken up the issue of the interstate agreement on detainers have recognized the, the mandatory language. The, the only issue to be resolved is whether or not that language is given effect. Um, Ms. Stewart stated that one of the reasons that Alabama joined the IAD was because there were certain benefits to the state. And I believe that there's a, a sort of implied consent doctrine that's at issue here, that if the state joins the IAD and the prosecutor takes the initiative to place a detainer, because that's the only way that this act is is activated, is by the placing of a detainer, then they have to be bound by what the statute says. It, it's it's quite quite clear. There um, there's no no room for any real discretion in here. The, what what's the purpose of the harmless error provision in the compact itself? Justice Souter, I don't believe that harmless error can apply to a situation like this where the statute is so explicit, not only in what is prohibited, but in the consequences if one violates that. Um, but do you, do you get that from the text of the, of the harmless error provision itself? There is no harmless error provision in, in the IAD. Am, am I misunderstanding your question? Well, maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm reading Rule 52, which I, comes at the end of the appendix. That was my mistake. Yes. Withdraw the question. I will go on and, and, and state some of the reasons that I don't believe that harmless error does apply. Uh, the IAD uses the sanction of dismissal with prejudice in, in three separate places. Uh, I, I simply cannot believe that uh, the legislative bodies that have adopted this uh, merely overlooked this sanction. I, I believe that it says this is an important issue. Uh, harmless error, even if one were to concede for the purposes of argument that it applied, it, it would be the state's burden uh, to show that something that is so substantial within this this statute, a right that is uh, uh, stated three separate places, uh, is uh, that there was no prejudice. And that's uh, — I'm uncomfortable with all these federal courts that, that presume that a short transfer is harmless. Well, what, what, what happens if the state of Alabama picks up the prisoner at a, the federal facility uh, and starts a, a three-hour journey, but after half an hour there's a big snowstorm and has to go back? That might be applicable in other states, Justice Kennedy. It's probably not in Alabama. <laughs> but but um, uh, a tornado, <laughs> a hurricane, perhaps. Um, I, I think there that might be a unique situation where um, where you might have a legitimate argument that 
that we didn't complete this. Act of God is uh, is a different exception than uh, de minimis and a different exception than harmless error. <laughs> Certainly. God doesn't act in many de minimis states. ways. <laughs> yes, it would not be de minimis and, and perhaps not harmless. What, 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 what if they return him to another facility? They take him away from the — this was in, Mar- uh, not, uh, in, in Florida. He was in Florida, yes. Uh, suppose they uh, took him next to Marion, Ohio. That's not the original place of imprisonment. Well, I think that the liberally construing the statute as Article uh, 9 calls for uh, means returning him to the original jurisdiction, not just to the original. Well, prison. you live by the sword, and you know what else you do uh, if, uh, <laughs> if you're going to believe in strict construction here. There's a kind of liberal construction in favor of the prisoner? Yes. And where, have we said that? Or? Um, uh, n- numerous courts have said that this is remedial. In, it benefits the prisoner and ought to be construed in favor of the prisoner. The Council on State Governments um, also has stated this, although it was a number of years after it originally proposed the legislation. What's, what's the authority of the Council of State Governments as to interpreting a written document? <laughs> It's somewhat weaker than than most legislative bodies or or so on, but it is the group that originally proposed the legislation and originally drafted it. It, It's the source of the IAD, which has been adopted in in nearly every uh, state. There are 48 states plus the the federal government that have adopted this. And what what was the position that the Council of State Governments took that it should be liberally construed to accomplish its beneficent ends or something like that? Uh, Liberally construed in in favor of the prisoner as as a remedial statute. Um, Well, but of course it had more purposes than one, did it not? I mean, I don't think you'd find a whole lot of states signing on to it if it did nothing but benefit prisoners. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, it, it, it also benefits the states, and that's what Ms. Stewart acknowledged, in that it provides them with an expedited mechanism for it, uh, getting prisoners without going through lengthy extradition procedures. It is a benefit to them, and, and that's why I mentioned this implied consent, that if they go through, join this uh, agreement, go through the procedures to get the person, and are enjoying those benefits, they also have to live by what... Yes, and that's true of prisoners, too, I suppose, responding to Justice Kennedy's hypothetical. They return him to the original yeah. jurisdiction. And, and in, ca- in fact, most cases uh, from, from all jurisdictions that uh, refer to Article 3, where it is the prisoner who initiates the, uh, the transfer, they have to follow the, the procedures quite strictly, or they do, do not get the benefits. It, it's part of my argument has been that uh, what's fair sauce for one side. Sauce for the sauce for the gander. Precisely. He doesn't actually uh, literally, if you take, if you were a literalist, and you look at E, it doesn't say where it begins to run. It says if trial is not had on any indictment, it doesn't say, well, I mean, when, if not trial, is it just doesn't say. So, so we have quite a lot of flexibility as to what we might read in there. I take it that they want us to say, in any instance where imprisonment in the original state is significantly interrupted, then if. 
All right. So what's your candidate for, it, for, for when it starts to run? You want to say in Justice Kennedy's hypothetical? If, subject to a detainer, the prisoner puts one foot out the door and immediately runs back, then, if trial is not had before he ran back, I mean, well, how do we fill in that? That's total blank. Well, that, that running back would be the waiver, which Justice Stevens has proposed as... as but uh, my question is, what triggers <laughs> E? The, the, e doesn't the, the say what triggers it. The, the trigger is the change, the te- temporary custody pursuant to a detainer. If temporary custody is is taken by the receiving state, and I... Right. Now, what they want to do is just say you're right. If significant temporary custody, where significant is interpreted in light of the purposes of the law, that's what they want to do. And so literalism isn't going to help because neither literally is there. Well, the legislative bodies that have adopted this have have made a legislative determination here. There's no room for discretion in the statute. They say — Sorry. My question is, what language says that you said if, and your language was what, if there is an interruption? It doesn't say that in E. There is no language in E if there is an interruption. You're making up the whole thing to read into it. By the way, I think you're right. Something like that must be read into it. Uh, Literally, where do you get the words you're reading into it? My wording is is in 4E prior to being returned. There there must be a trial prior to being returned to the — I know, prior to being returned. But once what prior to being returned? Once he sets a foot out the door, there is nothing there that tells us when E begins to run. Once what? Once he leaves, once he leaves any day, once he leaves to visit his grandmother, it's obviously not that. I I believe that you have to to read it in in context. You have to go up to to see where you have to read it in context. And now my question is, what are the words that you're reading in in context? Uh, From 4C, the arrival of the prisoner in the receiving state. All right. Maybe that's it. I have to read those, but you don't want to say, okay, maybe that's the answer. I, I, I think so. I, I, I think also, since we are on the, the time period there that's contained in 4E, the 120 days, I, I believe that that, that also uh, militates against a, a, a finding of harmless error or, or a, a requirement that one has to, to show prejudice. Certainly, 120 days is, in the vast majority of cases, is going to be nowhere near what the constitutional speedy trial requirement would be. Um, May I ask you, if, if your reference to the arrival of the prisoner in the receiving state in subparagraph C, is that your response to Justice Kennedy's hypothetical, too, about the hurricane or the snowstorm in Alabama? Uh, uh, Justice Stevens, I, I believe that it has to be that if, if they cross the state line, uh, that — Well, but there are many cases in which the federal prison is right across the street from this state prison. Yes, and, and there is a special provision in the IAD for that, Justice Kennedy, where the federal government can uh, — maintain custody of a prisoner and merely make them available for trial without turning over the temporary custody. Um, that's not the situation here, but that in, in those cases, uh, 
that would be a perfectly could, could, logical and in keeping with the statute. Could way. there have been an argument here that there was, uh, I don't know, continuous constructive custody by the federal government? No, he was in the custody of the sheriff of because Covenant they County. delivered him over to those. Yes, sir. Um, it, now, if they had wanted to send a, a, a federal marshal with him, that that would have been one of the prerogatives of the federal government as a sending state in, in this situation. That's not available when it's a state-to-state transfer, but it it, 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 it it is when the federal government is the sending state. Um, I, I would like to talk about the uh, the federal circuits because uh, I'm, even though I concede that there is a majority that have, have said something to the effect that a, a brief transfer doesn't harm uh, a, a prisoner's rehabilitation, but uh, I find that those statements are, in, in many cases, are, are dicta or are, are not persuasive, and these cases all tend to be somewhat incestuous also in that they rely upon one another. The, the earliest is the Chico case from the Second Circuit, um, which would not have received — Can I ask you before you get on to that, why one couldn't read the statute as has been uh, pro- proposed by the appellant to say the — don't return till trial is over, kicks in only when the transportation is for purposes of trial. That is, the act simply doesn't apply to bringing somebody in for pretrial matters. I would disagree with that, uh, Justice Ginsburg, because the act itself says that uh, it applies when there's a detainer and someone has been brought in for purposes of prosecution. Now, if you've placed a, a detainer on someone uh, for questioning or as a witness in another case, the interstate agreement on detainers does not apply to that because it only applies to detainers that are based on untried in, indictments, informations, and, and complaints. But uh, I simply — Well, how could a, a, An arraignment is certainly done? part of a prosecution. It, it, this very case, here's the prosecutor who says, I want him up here for one day mm-hmm. to avoid this trap of the, of the, is there a procedure, state to state, for bringing somebody up for a purpose other than trial? Certainly. You can have a hearing and ask the prisoner to waive. If he waives, uh, in, in fact, it, this court in, in United States versus Mauro, which is the first IAD case that, that this court has dealt with, um, the court clearly agreed with the idea that Ford had waived um, the anti-shuttling provision. He had not waived the speedy trial provision, and so this court uh, affirmed the dismissal of his indictment. Um, and I would also point out that that was without any requirement that, the, that he had been prejudiced by this, and he was brought to trial within about five months of having been transferred into the receiving state, which is just over the, the 120 days. So I, I would suggest to this Court that you have dealt with this issue of prejudice before and resolved it in, in favor of the prisoners. I don't really see still the theory of E. I mean, what, what are they trying to do? Once the person gets out, you know, once you take the prisoner in for a preliminary proceeding or something, it it interferes with his re- rehabilitation in the in the initial prison more rather than less to keep him in the state. Well, and, and that's a, a, a presumption that is uh, is perhaps 
intuitive, but one that I'm not convinced is, is borne out by the facts. And in, in the record below here, there, there, there simply is nothing. That issue was, was not, not dealt with. I'm asking for your experience as a criminal. Uh, Mr. Bozeman has informed me that he lost his position as a barber in the prison at Mariana because of the one-day uh, transfer. Uh, so he was prejudiced, although that's, that's not in the record below. Uh, the, the state uh, below was arguing waiver. I, I, mean, I mean, I don't mean in this case. I mean, in your general experience, having looked at all these statutes, what's your view of what the theory of this thing is? Be, uh, how is it really supposed to work? Because intuitively, I'd think that a person who comes from a preliminary hearing, the longer he stays away, the worse things are. But this provision but, seems to force the state to keep him away. Well, it, it, no more than 120 days, uh, Justice Breyer. And, uh, th- again, I mentioned the short time periods that are involved here. Uh, it envisions, I believe, those time periods because they're sufficient to take care of all pretrial matters within that time. He's sitting there. He gets it taken care of. And, of course, Article One, in stating the purposes, says that the purpose — is to resolve detainers. Bring someone in for arraignment and send them back. The detainer is still there, and the harm caused by the detainer is still there. And and that is the... Uh, But uh, if you're bringing somebody in just for trial, presumably you're going to get uh, counsel appointed if he's indigent only uh, only at the time he's brought in for trial. And... uh, is that going to be enough time for the for counsel to prepare? Well, again, with the 120 days, there there is a provision that it, continuances can be granted for good cause shown. Now, in the anti-shuttling clause, there is no uh, parallel construction there um, with the state. There's no provision that uh, we're going to shuttle you over your objection. However, the federal government provision would allow that by reading the federal amendment, the Article 9, which says, uh, you know, if there's a hearing and the court orders that you're sent back, that's not a violation. But that's only applying to the federal government as a receiving state. It's, it's not in the main body of the IAD. And I, I think that that is significant in terms of the statutory construction. And, in, in fact, I think it would be to run roughshod over the text to simply ignore it. Well, I, I did have the same question as the Chief Justice. It seemed to me that earlier the prisoner sees his new state counsel and begins working on the case, uh, and then the more time before the case starts, uh, the better off the prisoner is. The, the more time to, to confer with his counsel? Or, I, I, I certainly would think that. In, in, in this case, there was very little opportunity to, to confer with counsel. If I could turn back to these uh, federal cases, the, the Chico case, um, Mr. Chico was transferred for arraignment, transferred back, and then transferred back to plead guilty. Uh, he did not appeal. He made no objection to the transfer. Um, he was transferred pursuant to a writ of habeas corpus ad prosequendum rather than as a detainer. This was before this court had dealt with, with Morrow. Um, then, when he had a, a, a pro, probation violation, uh, he, he filed a 
petition for writ of habeas corpus asking that, uh, that the IAD be recognized. In uh, Reed versus Farley, this Court has held that uh, habeas corpus is, is not something that can be used to, to recognize violations of the IAD, so that would uh, simply not apply. Uh, this case is then cited as justification in another Second Circuit case, the Roy case. Um, Mr. Roy had so many uh, detainers from so many different de- jurisdictions that I feel quite certain that the Second Circuit was looking for any reason whatsoever to, to, to keep from excusing him. Uh, Mr. Roy had another case in the Seventh Circuit, which referred to the, the Second Circuit case and to the Chico case, um, and in fact the same transfer was complained about in the Second Circuit and in the, uh, the, the Seventh and the Second Circuit cases. Uh, the Taylor case uh, that Mr. Lampkin mentioned um, does say that a brief transfer doesn't happen, but the prisoner there asked to be transferred back to state custody. It's quite clearly a waiver, although the, the court, for some inexplicable reason, doesn't seem to, to reach that. Um, that, that's a, a First Circuit case. The Fifth Circuit Sassoon case um, is also was raised on habeas corpus, and in fact, it was raised on habeas corpus in the state courts. Um, it, it's, uh, Mr. Sassoon had had not appealed the issue following his his conviction. Um, the Sixth Circuit Taylor case, uh, many of these people, for some unknown reason, seem to be named Taylor. Uh, the, the court there held that since he was held in a jail and hadn't been transferred to a prison yet, that there was no violation, and then adds, and besides, all these other courts hold that quick temporary transfers do not violate the, the IAD. It mentions Article 9 of the Federal uh, Amendment in a footnote, but doesn't rely on it. And I I find it somewhat inexplicable that these courts have this federal amendment available to them, but it's evidently not being used, uh, because none of the opinions that I've found have have done more than mention it in a footnote. Well, were these federal prisoners? Yes, sir. So they could get the — the state could get the — the government could get the advantage of the federal amendment. Yes. All these are cases where the United States was the receiving state. Um, The Eighth Circuit Baxter case mentioned this, but it's, again, citing Chico, Taylor, and Roy. But it really resolves the the issue on the fact that um, Mr. Baxter was transferred by a writ of habeas corpus ad prosequendum prosequendum, (laughs) um, before uh, a detainer had been lodged. So uh, it it really doesn't doesn't add to to the argument other than to saying, yes, us too. And the Ninth Circuit Johnson case simply comes down saying, well, we've looked through and this is what the majority thinks and, and we think that, that also. Um, I would also point out that another reason I believe this cannot be de minimis or harmless error is uh, that we tend to focus in on the, the phrase, the court shall enter an order dismissing with prejudice, but there's also a self-executing clause in there. It seems that by the transfer itself, ex opere operato, the indictment 
becomes without further effect. Now, uh, that is uh, something that it, I believe that it requires an objection prior to trial to, to preserve that, just like any sort of defect in an indictment would, would require. Yet it's not something that you can apply uh, harmless error or de minimis uh, analysis to. Um, if the it seems somewhat redundant to have the then having the court enter a, a ruling dismissing the charge, but I believe that that's to prevent the prosecutor from coming back and reindicting on these same charges, and it also recognizes that the. Uh, there really is no indictment. Uh, self-executing clauses being somewhat difficult to, to enforce otherwise. Um, I would also point out it, it's not very difficult for the states to follow these rules. It's laid out quite clearly. In this particular case, as I have set out in, in the red brief, the, the prosecutor had, had ample opportunity to know what the statute said and and to follow the rules. Um, she even had notice from Mr. Bozeman himself, who had filed a pro se uh, motion objecting to a prior transfer that uh, that said the IAD requires dismissal. Um, it's uh, to excuse that is simply. Uh, I believe, would be saying that a prosecutor can do whatever he or she pleases and that they hope to be able to get away with it by by claiming that it's harmless. As a practical matter, um, a trial court judge is almost always going to rule that an error is, is harmless. He's going to rule against the prosecutor unless there is some uh, real teeth given to the wording of the statute. Against the prosecutor or against the defendant? Against the defendant. I'm, I'm, well, it, it, it is a, a sanction, I suppose, against the prosecutor, and they understandably don't like that because it's, it's so rare that that happens. And, and as a defense lawyer, it, 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 it gives me that small bit of, of, of cheer to occasionally have the upper hand. <laughs> Um, and also, this, this, this statute provides a, a bright line. I think that there are going to be endless hearings on, on whether or not harm has taken place if this Court rules that, that harmless error can apply. Um, if you rule that the strict language applies, the Court need merely see, has there been a transfer, and if so, has there been a waiver? I'm not sure what the harm consists of. If we had to look for harmless error, what, what would we look for? Losing, losing a job as a, as a barber? Uh, I, th I think that it would be something along the lines of rehabilitation, yeah. even, even though this purpose of the, the IED is to, to resolve detainers. I think the background behind that is that uh, detainers interfere with, with rehabilitation. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Christensen. Ms. Stewart, you have three minutes remaining. 
Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just a few points I wanted to point out. The respondent has conceded that there are some exceptions to the actual wording of section uh, of Article 40. He's conceded that the language is not that clear and that there, there might have to be cons- some construction of that statute in order to make it effectuate its purposes. Um, also, it's very important to point out that the agreement was not just for the benefit of the prisoner here. This agreement was entered into for the benefit of the party states as well as for the benefit of the prisoner, and that purpose is specifically stated in Article 1, and it is one of the purposes that needs to be considered in, in determining whether or not harmless error analysis should apply. Uh, in, in response to Justice Stevens's uh, question about waiver and whether or not uh, we could just have the prisoner waive, I think it's important to point out that uh, the respondent has argued that um, one of the re- problems w- with implementing harmless error is it would lead to additional litigation in the trial courts. And I'd point out that if we have a hearing every time we need to determine whether or not the uh, prisoner wants to waive the right, then again, we're going to have additional litigation. So either way, we're going to come up with additional litigation. In, un- in answer to Justice Breyer's question about what purpose of Article, what's the purpose behind Article 4E, I think it's simply meant to implement Article 4C, and it's a way to bring the prisoner over, and we need to have him here, dispose of the charges, and bring him back. But I don't think the purpose is to give the, the, um, the prisoner some sort of benefit, some sort of way to d- have this, the charges disposed of short of, of um, a trial. Uh, finally, Mr. Bozeman made no argument below about harm and that he suffered any harm, so it should not be considered here. And if this Court has no further questions, I thank you. Thank you, Ms. Stewart. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.